Please open your Bibles to probably the best-known chapter in the Bible, the most memorized, most familiar chapter in the Bible. I do, of course, mean Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm. And there's an insert with, with notes to follow along as we study this psalm, a wonderful passage, beautiful passage. I don't know if you know this, but probably the version of the psalm that most of us are familiar with would be the King James rendering. And William Shakespeare was one of the people brought in to consult on and actually help lend a hand with, with the translation of the Psalms for that translation. Because of its familiarity, though, there, there can be challenges with this psalm and its understanding. You've heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt. And because this is so well-known, because it is so cherished, because it is so often on, on quiltings, on cards, I think oftentimes we can miss the significance of the psalm. For instance, how many of you here are aware that while there is a shepherd metaphor, it's an additional metaphor. There's, there's two illustrations of God. The title of this morning's message is The Good Shepherd and Gracious Host. You don't set tables and banquets for sheep. The, the metaphor shifts starting in verse 5. We can miss that. We can gloss over that. There's another thing that's interesting here. There's a lot you may not know this, of references, echoes to the exodus from Egypt. Now, we, of course, celebrate the cross as the great redemptive act of God where he sent his son to die on behalf of sinful man. For our sins, he suffered, he rose again on the third day, and through faith in him, we can be forgiven. But for David, who wrote this psalm, the great redemptive act of God was the exodus from Egypt where he took a people in slavery broke them free, delivered them, entered into a covenant of salvation with them at Sinai, and brought them to a promised land. And the Old Testament will again and again and again make echoes, make overtones, reach back. And that's going on here as well, we will see. The other problem, I think, with this is not many of us are that familiar with sheep. Now, if John Eaton or Nancy Eaton were here, are they? They could tell you about sheep. But that's the other problem. This metaphor for a nomadic people, for people in Israel, would be a very common, familiar one. For us, um, we, we have to slow down and stop. Okay, what does this mean? So we're going to look at this psalm in two points. We're going to look first at the Lord is my shepherd, and then the Lord is my host, um, and benefactor, however you want to do that. And we're hopefully going to understand then what is, what is going on here in this beautiful, poetic psalm celebrating the blessedness of knowing God, celebrating the blessedness, like we sung, of knowing you, being united by faith with God. So let's, let's begin this morning just by reading the 23rd psalm in its entirety. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Wonderful psalm. 
The Lord is my shepherd. The division, the first four verses of this psalm, deal with the metaphor of God as shepherd. That's clear. But then in verse 5 and 6, the Lord is a host. He's first spreading a banquet table and eventually inviting David to come and dwell and reside in his home. You don't set banqueting tables for sheep, or if you do, expect a mess. And so the metaphor has shifted. And David in this psalm is extolling the benefits of knowing God, of being united to God, of having the Lord as his shepherd. So let's dive in, point A here. The first thing we've got to stop and understand is we've got to unpack this metaphor. This is, metaphors are pictures of things. It's not that God literally is a shepherd, of course, but he's like a shepherd. So the blank here is the fundamental notion of the Lord is my shepherd is that we are his sheep to shepherd. I hope that's not too complicated. I'm not going too fast. But you've got, you got to get that. Admitting the Lord is your shepherd is admitting you're a sheep. I don't know if you know this, but sheep are kind of dumb. Um, sheep, shepherds, we'll see even this psalm. Shepherds tell sheep where to go. Lie down here. Drink that. Eat that. Get up. Go. Move. Sheep need total provision. Sheep are not innovators. Shepherds have to direct every aspect of their life. And David here is, is saying, I'm a sheep and I've got a great shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And it's remarkable because God corporately had been called Israel's shepherd. In fact, in one of the first echoes to Exodus, in Psalm 77, 20, we read, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So in the Psalms, the exodus being brought through the wilderness, the Lord, like a shepherd, led his flock through the wilderness. He told them when to stop. He gave them food. He gave them rest. He kept them going through difficulties, and he brought them to good land. So God is Israel's shepherd, but here David has the audacity to say the Lord is his shepherd, my shepherd. And notice that, how the Lord caps this psalm. His name, the divine name, Yahweh, occurs as the very first word in the psalm and the last. The Lord, my shepherd is. Literally how the Hebrew renders it. And, and the, all of the benefits of this psalm and all of the blessings of this psalm are, are assumed in that first line. Because the Lord is my shepherd, all that follows. All that follows. So as, as we go into this, the, the question we've got to first look at and understand is, is for us to receive these blessings, we need to be willing to, to see ourselves, to be his sheep. This isn't a blessing for everyone. This is a blessing for God's sheep. Now, t- turn in your Bible to John 10. You may want to keep your thumb here because we'll come back to John 10 a couple of times. Because John 10, so the Lord Jesus Christ, for pretty much an entire chapter, develops even further the shepherding metaphor. He, he himself is the good shepherd. He's the one promised God would send his son David to come and shepherd Israel. And, and Jesus shows up and he does that. And Jesus helps us get some of this sheep dynamic. What, what does it mean to be a sheep? What does it mean to be the Lord's sheep? John 10 and keep your thumb here, like I said. We'll be coming back to John 10 a couple more times in our, in our time this morning. Pick it up in verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought them out, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, 
for they know his voice. So what's the fundamental character? The shepherd calls the sheep, the shepherd leads the sheep, the sheep recognize and hear the voice, and the sheep follow. That's what Jesus says. How, how is it that Jesus is a shepherd? And how are you as sheep? You, you hear his voice, you follow him. That, that, that is what demonstrates sheepness, for lack of a better term. Or a little later, verse 16. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Understand, Jesus is right now thinking of us. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd, or even a little further down in verse 26 and 27. Here rebuking the, the unbelievers, Pharisees, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. That's the decisive characteristic of sheepness. Jesus can say to those who are rejecting him, clearly, you're not my sheep because you don't hear my voice. My sheep, verse 27, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So fundamentally, what does it mean to be the Lord's sheep? It's to be one who hears his voice and who follows him. Being the Lord's sheep isn't about feeling sheepy or sheepish. Okay, that was a bad pun. I'm sorry. Being a sheep is fundamentally, when you, when you hear this word, do you hear the voice of the living God? Do you hear his voice? Do you, do you follow him? Do you strive to follow him? Now, this doesn't tell you how to become a sheep. You don't become a sheep by following Christ, by, by doing things. You become a sheep by putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, by being born again. You become a sheep by, by being transformed from within. We're all born into this world goats. But through the new birth, and the work of the Holy Spirit, we can become sheep. And the evidence that we are sheep, we are known to be sheep because we hear his voice and we follow him. This is a psalm, if that's you, this is a psalm of the blessedness of that. Because it can be difficult, right? We, who wants to admit they're stupid? Who, who, who wants to admit they need complete and total governing because they can't do anything right for themselves? But if you're willing to admit that, if you're willing to admit your weakness, I need a shepherd because I'm a stupid sheep. And not, I, I do. I do. No, no amening. No amening. <laughs> The good news is, back in Psalm 23, if we will admit that, we will find that we have the most wonderful, amazing shepherd possible. But that's the fundamental nature of this metaphor. David extols, the Lord is my shepherd. And then point B, because God is his shepherd, I shall not, and I want you to put the blank there, lack that's literally what's being said. There's a difference between not wanting things and not needing things. Many of us can say we want things, and the real question is, well, do we need the things we want? David is not saying, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I have no unfulfilled desires. Literally, the Hebrew, the, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I lack nothing that I need. Because the Lord shepherds me, because the Lord governs every area of my life, I have everything that I need. In fact, in another echo to the Exodus, this, this exact phrase is lifted from Deuteronomy 2, where the Lord God, through Moses, speaks to Israel, reminding them of his care as he led them through the wilderness. The Lord your God has blessed you, he writes in Deuteronomy 2.7, and blessed all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through the great wilderness. He's 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. And of course, the assumption is they've lacked nothing they needed. 
They were grumbling because they didn't have pots filled with meat and cheese. In one sense, you could say they lacked that. But, but they had everything they needed. God provided food for them. God provided water for them. He made sure that their shoes didn't wear out. He, he was his own presence with them. He gave them prophets in his word. They had everything they needed. They, there was nothing they lacked. That's what's being said here. David is saying, because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. And then he goes on to extol what types of things he needs. First, point one, we see he sustains and refreshes David. Verse two, here. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. Now, sheep are very nervous. That's why we get the word sheepish from. And apparently, I don't know this firsthand, but from what I've read, they will only drink from very, very calm water. And so a shepherd who cares for his flock is looking out for the very things they need. David's shepherd, the Lord, is mindful of David's weakness. He's mindful of our weakness. He's, he's taking us where we need to go. He's, he's keeping in mind our frailty. He's giving rest. He's, he's giving the sheep places to lie down. He's giving the sheep places to drink and eat. And the good shepherd in, in Matthew chapter 7 says this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Your Father who is in heaven, give you good things to those who ask him. Our Father's a good shepherd. He knows what we need. He knows we need rest. He knows we need food. He knows we need drink. And, and I think this is more picturing spiritual nourishment and refreshment, but God is covering all of the things we need. He's mindful of them. And because he is our shepherd, we don't lack anything. We may want things. We don't lack anything. He sustains and refreshes. Next, we see he heals and restores. That Verse 3, he restores my soul. Could be he converts or brings to repentance my soul. Soul could also mean life. This could be simply meaning as a sheep, the shepherd's looking out for and protecting the life of the sheep. And I think we understand how God does this. In Ezekiel 34, one of my favorite passages of the Bible, um, we, we hear about how God restores and heals. He's angry at the, the would-be false shepherds of Israel, and after blasting them at the beginning of Ezekiel 34, he then announces that he himself will shepherd his flock. And we get a peek of the types of things the Lord does as shepherd. Starting in Ezekiel 34, 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. The fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. The Lord, as a shepherd, 
is a restorer of life. He's a healer. Now, sometimes that's bringing us back. But he, he seeks the lost. He feeds the sheep. He brings them back. He makes them lie down. He heals the sick. He binds up the injured, and he strengthens the weak. And that same God is David's shepherd. And David says, he restores my soul. He gives me the rest I need. He gives me the food I need. He gives me the drink I need. He heals me. He watches out for me. Point three, we also see that this good shepherd leads and directs as well. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, paths of righteousness is another translation that can sometimes be a little misleading. Literally, it's the right paths, the proper paths. We, we don't generally ever use the word righteousness apart from religion, apart from Christianity, but righteousness is simply the word rightness. Something is right, something is just. Now, in a moral setting, it takes on the moral overtones, and that's pretty much exclusively where we use righteousness, is in really a moral setting before God. He, he, what David's saying is this shepherd takes him down the appropriate, the fitting, the right path. He can trust his guidance. And that's, that's an important thing for sheep because we're going to see in a minute that sometimes where the good shepherd leads is kind of scary. You just have to go a verse further ahead to see that. And David extols his confidence that where the good shepherd leads is the right place to go. It's the right place to go. If you're one of the Lord's sheep, if he's shepherding you, he hasn't made any mistakes. He didn't get lost. He doesn't need to check for directions. He, he has led you in the right path. The very next verse will address that sometimes the right path is scary, is dark. It's the right path. He leads you in the right paths. And he does it for his name's sake. And that phrase, his name's sake, is a declaration that he, he isn't going to make a mistake. His name's on the line here. I did a quick search through the, New, the Old Testament on this phrase, God acting for the sake of his name. It only occurs about a dozen times. And in every instance, God is saving, God is forgiving, God is being gracious to his people for his name's sake. Let me just read you a couple examples. 1 Samuel 12, 22. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Psalm 25, 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Psalm 31.3, you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. Psalm 79.8, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Psalm 106, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake. Psalm 109, 21. But you, O Lord, my God, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because of your steadfast love, deliver me. See, God's a savior at heart. When he claims a people as his, his name is on the line. And and so he's not making any mistakes. He's, he's not going to let us perish by the way. He's not going to let a single sheep be lost. This is the shepherd who leaves the 99 and finds the one. He's doing it for his namesake. But every time God acts for his namesake that I can tell in Scripture, we get the blessing. We get, we get the goodness. So God gets the glory. We get the blessing. Amen. Let God act for the sake of his name. Let God act for the sake of his name. 
He, he, you can trust his guidance, is what David is saying. God's put his name on the line. That's the logic a little later of the same phrase. I'll re- read you one more example in, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20. Four times God expresses his anger towards Israel, and in every four times he relents for the sake of his name. And finally, in Ezekiel 36, he says this, as he announces that he's going to change their hearts and pour clean water on them and give them his spirit. It's not for your sake, a house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Every time God acts for the sake of his name that I can tell, in every instance, we get blessings, we get forgiveness, we get salvation. Because that's who God is. And and David here, he he leads me along the proper, the right, the fitting, the correct path for the sake of his name. Verse four. Even though I walk the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, if you look at this first section of the shepherd, you'll notice there's two I wills. Just about everything else is what he does. He makes me lie down. He leads. He restores. But in verse 1, I will not want. Verse 4, I will not fear. And that's point C. Because he is my shepherd, I will not fear. Because he's my shepherd, I won't want, point B, point C. Because he is my shepherd, I will not fear. And then we get to the challenging bit. Up to this point, having the good shepherd looks really pleasant. You know, clear, smooth water, green meadows. Now we get to the valley, the shadow of death. And this is where theology matters because one of the things that's clear here is the shepherd is leading David into this valley. He's just said in the verse before, he he will lead me in the correct, the right path. Verse five, now that path that the shepherd has deemed as appropriate, has deemed as the right one, might be terrifying. And some people want to have a theology where God is only responsible for the happy things. God is only responsible for the, 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 the kind things, the wonderful things, the exciting things, the blessed things. And the bad things, that's the devil. The bad things, that's human free will and, and chance, and God has nothing to do with that. You know, there's a, there's a Dan, Pastor Daniel and I were praying this morning for the service, and he was telling me there's a, there's a hurricane moving towards the Hawaiian Islands where his parents are at, and, and really... Who knows what will happen? And both of us do agree that God is sovereign over this hurricane. The hurricane isn't something God's left his hands off. And so because of that, we can pray to God, God, would you protect Daniel's parents? Would you, would you act on their behalf? You see, God may lead us. He will lead us at times through dark places. He, he hasn't made a mistake. This is important because what you're going to see is the very thing that comforts David in the dark valley is God's presence. If you think God has abandoned you because he's brought you to a dark valley, if you think this is God's handoff, God, where did you go? Then the one thing that David finds his comfort from is taken from you. You get that? The precise thing that David gives him courage is knowing that in this dark valley, God is with him. So we've got to recognize, God, you've led me here, and you're with me. 
You're with me in the valley. You're with me in the dark, scary place. Literally, the, the valley of the shadow of death is the, the valley of deep darkness. Who knows what's out there? Who knows how uncertain the terrain is? Who knows what dangers await? Well, the shepherd does. We can trust him. And because the shepherd is close and at hand, David says he knows where he's going. He's leading me the right path. And that, notice that. I will fear no evil, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? For you are with me. In fact, verse 4 is the most familial section of the entire psalm. The pronouns shift from he to you. This is the most relational, the most intimate part of the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. You are with me. You get that? It's, it's emphatic. It is precisely because God is close and at hand that David says, okay, I trust you, and you're here with me in this. If you're going through something dark, frightening, he hasn't left you alone. He, he is there with you. He's led you there. He's led you there. And the, his very presence is the thing that David finds his courage in. Because he is my shepherd, I will not fear. His presence gives courage. His presence gives courage. This is another echo, by the way, back to the Exodus. In Jeremiah 2.6, which I need to get to. Jeremiah 2.6, this same phrase for the, for the, that we translate the valley of the shadow of death is translated as, speaking of the Exodus, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us out from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness? in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. That, that phrase ESV translates deep darkness is shadow of death, the shadow of shadows. God led Israel through a, a terrible wilderness. It doesn't support people. It's inhos inhospitable. And he provided for them. And they need not be afraid. Israel was afraid frequently and grumbled and complained, but their shepherd was faithful. He, he did not make a mistake. And David, looking back on that, says, okay, I'm going I'm to trust my shepherd, and when hard times come, it's precisely God's presence that I'm going to look to for comfort and support. When we realize that the shepherd is close in that hand, that's how sheep, sheep need a shepherd who's right there with them. And we know that even as trials, difficulty come, the shepherd is there with us, and he loves us, and he knows what he's doing. Paul writes in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. We ought to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul's saying is, is death and danger doesn't separate us from Christ. He's there. Sickness and disease doesn't separate us from Christ. He's there. Unemployment, relational conflict doesn't separate us from Christ. He's there. We need to look to him and look to knowing him. This is why we're saying knowing you. That's where we're going to find strength. When, the, when things get knocked out from underneath you, how are you going to stand? It's going to be your relationship with Christ. It's going to be the shepherd or no shepherd. 
depending on where you're at with the Lord. David's saying when he's scared, when difficult, David, you read his life, he had a lot of danger, a lot of sorrow. He's not afraid because he knows the shepherd's there. His presence gives courage. And we also see that his rod and his staff comfort him. His protection gives comfort. Now, a shepherd has two primary accoutrements, tools. He has a rod and a staff. The rod is an offensive weapon used to strike and attack wolves, lions, bears. David dealt with it all. David knows firsthand what they're for. Staff is a little different. Staff's for the sheep. The sheep, like I said, are stupid. They start to wander off, and they head towards cliffs. And the shepherd gets that shepherd's crook, that staff, and he brings them on back. And so David is looking not just to God's protection of him against foes to find comfort. And that's, that's comforting. I mean, when, when you're an Israelite and you see God blast supernaturally your enemies, the sun stands still under Joshua, hornets and hail start wiping out your enemies, you feel pretty safe. But David doesn't just look to that proverbial Staff. He's also looking to God's, I mean, to his rod. He's looking to his staff. This is interesting. This is very interesting and unusual for us. How many here find comfort in God's discipline and correction in your life? You should. It means he loves you. It means he cares for you. You know, we, could, we can grumble and complain about God's correction in our life, but here David is saying it's precisely because he sees God's commitment for him, both from his enemies and from himself, that he's confident that the good shepherd's leadership will never falter. The author of Hebrews quotes Proverbs 6 in chapter 12, saying, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he reproves you, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you've endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and sons. Every time I I sense that God is is fixing my wagon, one of the things I know is I'm his kid, dad loves me, and he's dealing with me. doesn't make discipline pleasant, but we can find comfort in that. Have you seen God be faithful to protect you not only from others but from yourself, from your own sin? David looks not just to the staff, to the rod, but also to the staff for his comfort. You know, God is a jealous God. Second commandment against idolatry. The Lord says he is a jealous God. And God's jealousy works both ways. And, and, I, and I remember this sticks in my head. He's zealous, he's jealous. Because this, this very point, and a sermon on this point, is the, is the reason I'm married today. Um, but... Eleven and a half years ago, um, I had proposed to Serena and told her to take all the time that she wants to figure out if she wanted to marry me. I said, you, you, you figure, I imagine that would be a difficult decision. And so, so you know, we're, we're hanging out, we're at college, and um, we go to church, and Phil Johnson is in the pulpit at Grace Community Church, and Phil Johnson does a message on, on Exodus 20, verse 5, God's jealousy, and he talks about how God's jealousy is a, a sort of double-edged sword, it's something to delight in, and it's something to be afraid of. Because, because God is jealous for Israel, the expression in Deuteronomy, you're like the apple of God's eye, and if someone tries to mess with you, you're like someone poking God in the eye, and God doesn't like being poked in the eye, and people that poke him in the eye eventually don't like it either. And, but also, God is jealous that if the Israelites, the Israelites, they're unfaithful, they turn to other gods, God's jealous. He'll send them to Babylon for 80 years, right? God's jealous. And so Phil used this example 
He said, his, he said his, God's jealousy, he was reminded of it by his wife, that we can delight in God's jealousy and we can be scared of God's jealousy. And he says, Phil said, and I, and I sympathize with this, he says, oftentimes I'll be in stores and the lady behind the counter will be getting a little too familiar. She might be flirting with me because I don't pick up on it. It goes right over my head. He goes, but my wife will come up and saddle along next to me and put her arm around me as if to say, he's mine. He goes, I love that. I love my wife's jealousy for me. I love my wife claiming me. I love my wife guarding me. He goes, conversely, nothing, this is Phil again, nothing gets my wife more upset than when she hears about pastors in the ministry who've, who've left their wives, fallen from the ministry. And periodically when she hears of such an account, she'll look at me and go, Phil, you ever do that to me? I'll kill you. Listen, <laughs> I get scared. And, and, and that's, that's how God feels about us. That's God's jealousy for us. He protects us from our enemies. That rod is there, but his staff guards us from ourselves. If you're wondering how that got me married, Serena, walking out of, of the sermon service that day, said, you know, I, I feel that way protective of you too, but you're not mine. I haven't committed to marry you. Said, yeah, that's a fair point. You know, until you decide that you want to marry me, you have no claim on me. I'm not yours. And she mulled that over, and I went and got a haircut when I came back. We were formally engaged. So <laughs> thank you, Phil Johnson. Thank you, Phil Johnson. That's how that message, and that, but see, you don't forget things like that. You don't forget things like that, wonderful providences of God. David finds comfort, not just in God's protection against enemies, but David finds comfort in God's own correction of him. Maybe he's thinking, who knows when he wrote this, maybe he's thinking of God sending Nathan to rebuke him about murdering Bathsheba's husband. I know God loves me. He didn't leave me in my sin. Because if you read Psalm 32, David tells you how miserable he was while he had not confessed his sin. How God's hand was heavy upon him and how his bones dried up and his, his, his body was weak. His spirit was crushed. God, it was loving of God to send Nathan to him. It was loving and fatherly of God to shepherd him with his staff. And so thus ends the, the, the first section, the good shepherd. There's one other point I want to make, though, about this good shepherd we can take comfort in. I mean, David doesn't know this, no, at least not clearly. But back to John 10. Go back, go back to John 10. This shepherd who protects us, this shepherd who corrects us. How invested is he in the life of a sheep? How far can we trust him? Look at John 10, 10 to 14. We can trust this shepherd. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How far will God go to protect us, to guard us, to keep us safe? He'll send his son Jesus to die. The good shepherd will die to redeem his flock. You think you can trust that shepherd to lead you even if it's scary, even if it's dark, even if you don't want to go there? This is a shepherd who's laid down his life for the flock. We, we can trust him. We can trust him. So David celebrates God as his shepherd and how because of that, there's nothing he needs. Because of that, there's nothing he fears as long as he's close to him. He'll, he'll follow him anywhere because he trusts him. He has a good shepherd. But in the last two verses, the metaphor shifts now we get God as the host of a, of a banquet. You prepare a table before me, he says, in the presence of my enemies. 
You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And here, we again, once again, we've got to slow down and figure out what this metaphor is. And here it is, point A. Just as in 1A, we are his sheep to shepherd. Here, we are his guests. He is our host. You get that? We're his guests. He's our host. He's the one setting up the table. He's the one filling up the cup. He's the one anointing people's heads with oils. He's the host of the dinner party, of the celebration. We are the guests. What's important about that is this. Guests don't have rights. Everything guests receive is grace. Everything guests receive is grace. So a point of inviting someone to your house. You're being gracious to them. You're being kind to them. And God lavishly pours out on David these good things. But they're all graces. David's extolling God's grace to him. Understand the good things God's given you. You don't deserve them. It's a grace. And he is like this bountiful and gracious host who spreads out a table. Lavish table. And it's in the most surprising of places. What David's talking about here is God's ability to, to honor, to bless, to encourage, to nourish, even in the midst of here enemies. Even in those trials. And again, just, just because you're in a difficult place, just because you've got foes, you're battling someone or something, doesn't mean God can't refresh you, doesn't mean God can't honor you. The picture, this is a Near Eastern picture of, of going to a dinner party. You'd anoint someone's head with oil, which is a way of honoring them, a way of, of refreshing them. And they've got a, a cup for this feast, and it's overflowing. It's not a stingy party. It's not meager. It's overflowing table lavishly spread. This is another echo back to the Exodus as well, by the way, in Psalm 78, 19. The only other place this, this expression, to spread a table, is found about the Exodus. They spoke of God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? What I think David might be thinking of is in the very least likely hospitable place, in the Sinai Peninsula wilderness, God gave them water from rocks. He gave them, for lack of a better term, magic bread. I mean, they didn't even know what to call it. Manna just means, what is it? What should we call it, right? He sent them quail. The most inhospitable place you could probably imagine, God took care of them. They had all the food they could eat, all the water they could drink. He spread a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is also a picture of fellowship with God because this is God's table. This is the Lord's table. Table of the Lord, and the Lord's inviting David to sup with him. The Lord's inviting David to sit down and feast with him. Again, this tying back into his presence, his fellowship is what gives him courage. And here in the face of his enemies, he's, he's having a, a banquet with the living God. Paul in the New Testament can speak about this duality, the, the external enemies, the internal renewing in 2 Corinthians 4 this way. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We don't lose heart, Paul writes. Our outer self is wasting away. You can read a list of Paul's sufferings, shipwrecks, beatings, floggings. Paul's outer self was wasting away. It says, inwardly, 
is being renewed day by day. God sets a table, banquet table, in the midst of enemies. The most unlikely of places. Next point C. We see that his relentless grace pursues us. That's the first surprising sort of ironic juxtaposition is in verse 5. You wouldn't expect a dinner banquet in the midst of enemies. What do enemies normally do? They pursue you. They chase you down. They hunt for your life. And in verse 6, we find that something else is pursuing David. It's literally those words. Surely goodness and mercy follow me as way too weak. They'll pursue me. They're after me. Do you know God's grace and his mercy, if you're his child, is, is following you, is after you. It's, it's, it's inescapable. That's good news. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, goodness and mercy, this, this is again an echo back to the Exodus. When the Lord reveals himself to Moses and Moses says, show me your glory, and God hides in the cleft of the rock, this is how God reveals his name. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, this is Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Surely goodness, and that word translated in the ESV is mercy, is steadfast love, covenant, gospel love, never-ending, never-giving-up love. It's going to hound us. God is relentless in his love for us. He is, he is ruthless in his pursuit of us. And his grace and his covenant love is going to follow us all the way home. He may lead us into the valley of, of darkness. He may lead us into the valley of the shadow of death. But he's also coming up behind with his grace, coming up behind with his covenant love. And all the way to the end, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the way up to that final state, that, that goodness, that mercy is following, following, following. Because the God we serve is a God abounding in steadfast love and grace. Relentless grace pursues us. Relentless grace pursues us. Again, this is another picture of God, how he led the people in Israel. Exodus 15, 13, describing the Exodus. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. More echoes of Exodus. And finally, we see not only does his relentless grace pursue, he is our reward and his presence our hope. He is our reward and his presence is our hope. Here's, here's my point. The high point of this, as David's going through life as a pilgrim, as a sheep, again, the picture, the metaphor is just like Israel walking through the wilderness. Well, eventually they stop going through the wilderness, they get to the promised land. And David, in this life, he's got times where he's lying down by still water. He's got times where he's eating green grass. He's got other times he's going through the dark valley of deep darkness. That journey's going to end. Now, all the way there, God's preparing for his needs. God's setting up tables at the most unexpected of places. God's grace and steadfast love is hounding him. But eventually, he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, at David's time, there was no temple. So the house of the Lord, though, is something that David and the other writers would refer to where God's ark was, the house in Shiloh at this time. It's the Lord's house. 
And what David's saying is this, because that is where God's special Shekinah presence was. That's where the mercy seat was. That's where God localized himself on earth. And God's saying, wherever God is, even if it's in a tent in Shiloh, that's where I want to be. And I'm excited. The high point of this psalm is I'm going to be with God. You see, the, the essence of the biblical notion of a temple is a temple is where man and God meet and are at peace and sin is dealt with, right? So first you've got the, the tent of meeting between Moses and God and when Moses left, his face would shine and then there's the, the tabernacle, God's sort of mobile temple and the tabernacle is where men and God meet where the sacrifices are made and sin is dealt with. And then eventually David's son Solomon's going to build a physical stone temple and the Shekinah glory of God's going to fill it and that's where sacrifices is done and sin is dealt with and men and God meet. And then, just sort of following this thread for a minute, David's hope, where, where's it headed? It's not, just, it's not headed to a piece of architecture. It's not headed to a tent. It's headed to where God is. Because a little bit later, there's going to be a Jewish carpenter in the streets of Jerusalem who says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. Why? Because Jesus is where man and God meet and sin is dealt with. Then, in 1 Corinthians the Apostle Paul speaks to you and says, don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Us collectively and individually? Why? Because with Christ in heaven, the church is where man and God meet. It's where sin is dealt with. But to turn, turn your Bibles to Revelation 21. Because this, this life can be hard. I mean, we can go through dark, dark valleys and difficult times. And as soon as we look at this, we'll, we'll get ready to sing our, our closing song. But he is our reward. He is our hope, ultimately. This is what's the, the light at the end of the tunnel. For David, the picture of that is, is God's house, a tent in Shiloh. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Now jump down to verse 22. You read something amazing. What's missing from the new heavens and new earth? There's no temple. Why? Because in all of creation... God and man will be at peace. In all of creation, sin has finally been dealt with. All of creation, in one sense, is temple. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city. Verse temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. This lamp is the Lamb. David's ultimate hope is our ultimate hope. We will be with God, beholding him. No more sin interfering with our relationship. All of creation 
all of the new creation, and all of us who know him will be fully reconciled. We, we will be in that relationship with him. That's David's hope. He wants to dwell where God is, where his presence is. Our ultimate hope, where that thread of temple ends up, is Revelation 21. Or to put it simply, Peter says this way, 1 Peter 3.18, why did Jesus die? Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus die? He, he died to bring us to God. He is our reward. If you're excited to go to heaven because you're going to see dead relatives there, that's, that's great. That's going to be a blessing. If you're excited to go to heaven because you won't gain weight or what, that's nothing compared to that's where God is. That's where Jesus is. And we're not going to see through a glass dimly anymore, but we're going to know as we are known. We'll be in perfect, unhindered fellowship with him all the days of our life. And until we get there, God's grace and his covenant love is hounding us, sometimes hounding us to fix our wagon, but it's hounding us all the way there. We're not being pursued by enemies. We're being pursued by the love of God. And that's why David can cry out, what a great shepherd, what a gracious host. And we now, as I call the worship team up, we're to sing our closing song. We will sing about our great shepherd that we have. Let's, let's get ready now to prepare our hearts to sing.